to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 18, as we follow along with today's lesson. So no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. And this commandment, he said, I have received of my Father. So there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a devil. Why do you listen to him? He's crazy. Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And so they're still faced with this miracle. They can't give an explanation for it. Obvious miracle. A man born blind is now there. He sees. And and so it creates the division. Now, some two months later or so, You see, this all took place around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which takes place in October. On December the 25th, they have the Feast of Dedication, also called the Feast of Lights, and today known as Hanukkah. And so John jumps over, a couple of months of the life of Jesus without any comment. And we are back again in Jerusalem. Some two and a half months later at the Feast of Dedication. Now, this is one of the feasts of the Jews that does not appear in the Mosaic Law. It is not one of the required feasts for them to be in Jerusalem They can observe the Feast of Dedication anywhere. And it is the feast by which they were commemorating the rededication of the temple after it had been profaned by the uh, Syrian uh, ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. He and cold and calloused disregard for the Jews put the image of Jupiter in their temple in the Holy of Holies and he offered a pig as a sacrifice upon the altar of God he profaned the temple of God there was a 
family, the Maccabees. And Judas Maccabeus, one of the boys, led a rebellion against the rule of Syria and they overthrew the Syrians, drove them out. And they decided to rededicate the temple to cleanse it from the impurities of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so they had the feast of dedication that followed year after year to celebrate the dedication once again of the temple and the cleansing of the profaning of the temple under this Syrian ruler. So Jesus was at Jerusalem and John tells us it was winter and, and because that feast does take place right at winter time, December 25th. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. This was a large colonnaded porch of the temple. It was on this porch that Peter healed the lame man and the crowd assembled and Peter preached to them and uh, several thousand were converted. So a large area. And Jesus, as he was there on Solomon's porch, there came the Jews round about him. That is, they encircled him. They hemmed him in. They cornered him. And they said unto him, How long do you make us doubt, or do you leave us in this question? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. How long do you leave us just hanging? Make your claim. He did, and they picked up stones to kill him. But he said unto them, I told you, and you did not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. The works that I've done, they, they answer your question. Now, there were those who recognized that. Nicodemus, when he came to him, said, no man can do the works that you do unless God is with him. In the 17th chapter, when... Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Philip saith unto him, Lord, just show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus said, Have I been so long a time with you, Philip? Haven't you seen me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How is it that you say, Show us the Father? Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So again, he calls upon the works that he does as the evidence. Not just laying claim, not just saying, yes, I am the Messiah. Anybody can say that. As when the man with the palsy was let down uh, there in the house and they removed the roof and let the man down and Jesus said, your sins be forgiven. And, and there was a real hubbub by the uh, Pharisees when they heard that. And Jesus said, well, what's what's Harder to say, your sins are forgiven, arise, take up your cot, and go. 
but that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turned to the man with Paul and he said, take up your cot and go home. And the man took up his cot and walked out the door. The works bore witness, you see, that he had the power to say thy sins are forgiven. When they said, no man can forgive sins but God, you know, that's blasphemy. What's he saying, you, your sins forgiven? That's blasphemy. Jesus is proving that he has the power. No man can forgive sins but God. He's proving that he has the power to forgive sins, proving that he is God. And so he calls now again upon his works. You want to know if I'm the Messiah? The works. I told you, but you didn't believe me. So the works that I do, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Interesting verse. The reason why you don't believe because you're not my sheep, as I said to you. There's a fascinating verse in the book of Acts that talks about a invitation that was given and it says, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now when we start getting into the subject of predestination and foreordination and all, I believe we are trampling in areas that our human brains are not capable of really filtering out and coming to a complete understanding. And I think those who dogmatically claim to know the most know the least. The Bible clearly declares that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The invitation was to all to come and drink of the water of life freely. And yet, there are those that are of the fold, his sheep, and those that are not. And they did not believe because they were not his sheep. I don't understand it. I openly and honestly confess to you, I don't understand it. There are always those who are trying to get you on one side of the fence or the other to get you to commit. I drive them crazy. <laughs> because I'm not committed on this. I believe that the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God, divine election and predestination. But I also believe that the Bible teaches the free moral agency of man, how that Man is a self-determinate being made in the image of God and how that we can choose. And God offers us the choice. And that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And how to reconcile it, I can't. Maybe you're smarter than I, and I wouldn't question that, and I wouldn't challenge that. But uh, I'll just stay blissful in my ignorance, and you can fight. My sheep, he said, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I'm glad that I'm one of his sheep. That's all I can say. I have heard his voice. I follow him. And he said, I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. What a glorious promise. 
and I revel in it. I rejoice in it. And neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Paul the Apostle, in the eighth chapter of Romans, the latter part, asked a series of questions that I absolutely enjoy every time I read them and contemplate and meditate upon them. Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? That's a great one to meditate on. First of all, to know that God is for you. And if God is for me, then just who can be against me? As Martin Luther said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him. One little word will fell him. If God be for us, who can be against us? And who is he that condemneth? It is Christ who has died, yea, rather is risen again, and is even at the right hand of the Father making intercession. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who is justified. And then who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? I love that one. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, principalities or powers, things present, things to come, nor any other created being is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I love that. Jesus said, no man will pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all principalities, powers, anything else. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand and I and my Father are one. Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. He goes one step further. He said, I and the Father are one. Substance. We are one. So then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. All right, you told us plainly. (laughs) We got the message. And so in, in sort of, I think, almost a humorous way, Jesus said to them, I have done many good works from my Father. For which of these works are you going to stone me? Now he had healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He had now opened the eyes of a blind man. You know, of which, for which of the works are you going to stone me? And they answered him saying, For good works we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because thou, being a man, continually make yourself God. Now, they were there They clearly understood the claims that Jesus was making, even though the Jehovah Witnesses don't understand what Jesus was saying to the present day. Jesus was saying he was God. He was saying, I and the Father are one. He was continually avowing the fact that he was God. And for this... They were ready to stone him. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? And notice this is, I find quite interesting, that I said, in other words, Jesus is saying, I authored the law. 
They always thought the law came from Moses. Jesus said, isn't it written in your law that I said that you are God's? <laughs> I mean, I am the Father of one. And, and that's a pretty brave statement when they guys have stones in their hands <laughs> to claim to be the author of the law. Now, so often at this point, people will point you to Psalm 82.6. But Psalm 82.6 is not the law. It's the Psalms. Jesus is saying that he said it in the law that they were gods. Incidentally, the Mormons pick up on this as a proof text that if they are faithful to the Mormon church and their marriages are sealed within the temple, uh, that they will be gods, they will ascend into the next state of godhood and will uh, be able to go to their own private little planet and uh, begin a, a race of people and uh, the family is forever and they can have their own celestial family on some planet someplace. And this is their proof text, Jesus declaring that ye are gods. Uh, now, in turning, first of all, let's turn to Psalm 82 and see what the psalmist says. But we need to see it in the context. Just don't start with the sixth verse, start with the first verse. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, and he judgeth among the gods. How long, he said, will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? And now speaking to the judges or to the gods, he said, defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All of the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are the children of the Most High. Now notice, here again he said, I have said. So this is a quotation. I have said that ye are gods. That's a quotation. So Jesus is saying, did I not say in the law? So where in the law did he say that ye are gods? You have to go back to Exodus chapter 21 and chapter 22. And here is where it doesn't really uh, become obvious in our King James Bibles, but in the Hebrew, it is there. Chapter 21, first of all, verse 22. Now, here God is laying out the law and the judgment that is to be meted out in certain cases. If this should happen, then this is the judgment. And so he is instructing the judges concerning the law and the penalties that are to be ev evoked for certain crimes. 
And in verse 22, if men strive and hurt a woman who has a child who's pregnant, so that the child departs from her, the child is aborted, and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. The word judges there, interestingly enough, is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is God's plural. So he shall pay whatever the gods determine. The judges were called gods, small g, plural, because they had the power of life and death over people, or they had power of people's destiny who were brought before their courts. And as God has the power over us, life or death, or power concerning our destiny, these men were to act in God's stead. They were to uh, see that God's law was fulfilled. And so the judges were called Elohim, gods. And you have it then in chapter 22, beginning with verse 8. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges, again in Hebrew, Elohim, or gods, to see whether he has put to his hand his neighbor's goods. For all manner of trespass, whether it is for an ox or a donkey or sheep, for raiment or for any manner of lost thing, uh, which another challenges to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the Elohim, judges or gods, and whom the judges or gods shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. So uh, the word there is Elohim or gods, and so that's where in the law, Jesus said, ye are gods, referring to the judges who had the power over a person's uh, destiny, really, uh, because they were determining the innocence or the guilt and the punishment that should be meted out for the guilty. So there it is. Next time you're talking to a Mormon and they bring that up, you can take them back and show what Jesus was talking about. Now, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, these are the judges to whom God's edicts for certain crimes were given, and the scripture cannot be broken, interesting passage, the scripture cannot be broken. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should uh, repent. Hath he not spoken, and shall he not make it good? The scripture, that, that comforts me. The scripture cannot be broken. God will stand by his word. He'll honor his word above his name. Do you say of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world that you blaspheme because I said I am the Son of God? Why are you going to sow me? For what good work? Not for your good works, but for blasphemy because you being a man are making yourself God. So Jesus is again sort of showing them their own scriptures. And he said that are you going to accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am the son of God? 
the one who the Father has sanctified and sent into the world? He said, if I do not the works of my Father, then don't believe me. If I haven't done the works of the, then don't believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. Let the works again bear witness. As he said to Philip, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. He called upon his works, his miracles, as a proof that he was the Son of God. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and many Jews from all over the world who were there for the feast of Pentecost gathered because of the phenomena that accompanied the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When Peter stood up in the midst and began to address the people, ye men of Israel, hearken unto me. For these people are not drunken, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, when he said, In the last days, saith the Lord, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And upon my servants and handmaidens will I pour out of my spirit in that day, saith the Lord. And there shall be blood and fire, vapor of smoke, moon turned into blood, sun into darkness, before the great notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, let me speak to you. He said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was approved of God by the signs and the wonders that he did in your midst. More literally from the Greek, who was proved to be of God. So Peter is there Again, using the same witness, the works of Jesus proved that he was of God, proved to be of God by the signs and the wonders that he did in the midst of you. So here again, once more, Jesus is calling upon the works as the witness that he was from God, that he was in harmony with God in the works, that what the Father was doing is what he was doing manifesting the works of the Father among them because he and the Father were one together. And therefore they sought again to take him. He's again making it clear, and so once more. They attempt to take him, but he escaped out of their hands because his hour was not yet come. Got a couple more months uh, before the hour comes. And he went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, down uh, near Jericho, and there he stayed. So uh, leaving now the place of hostility, Jerusalem, going back uh, to the area of the Jordan uh, where he will remain until called by Mary and Martha uh, to come quickly because of the serious illness of their brother Lazarus. But many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, and all things that John spake of this man were true. John said, There is one that is coming after me who is mightier than I am, 
whose sandal latch that I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John said of him, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And so the people are saying, you know, John didn't do any miracles. And yet we accepted him as a prophet. Everything that John said of this man is true. And so many did believe on him uh, there by the Jordan River where he will stay until his final journey to Jerusalem. So next chapter, we have him coming back uh, to Jerusalem uh, at the call of Mary and Martha. Let's turn in our Bibles to the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to John. Now there was a certain man who was sick. He was named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. We read in another place where Jesus came to the home of Martha. It was the town, though, of Mary. Martha was a homebody. She was a real home person. Martha was, I would, I, I would say, busybody in a nice sense. She was one who was just knew everybody. Everybody knew her. So it's interesting. It says the town of Mary. It's the house of Martha, but the town of Mary. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, John in the 12th chapter will tell us about the anointing with ointment. John is writing years later, and so as he is identifying her, he says it's that one who anointed Jesus with this costly perfume. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells about it in the 26th chapter and how that Jesus said she had anointed him for his burial. But uh, we'll get that in chapter 12, the first part. We come to the anointing uh, of Jesus by uh, Mary. Now, this is not to be confused with uh, the anointing of Jesus uh, by the sinful woman when he was at the house of a Pharisee whose name was Simon. The woman came up and uh, she uh, stood at his feet and her tears falling upon his feet, she wiped them with her hair and then she uh, anointed his feet with perfume. Uh, you remember Simon the Pharisee said, if this man were really a prophet, um, he would have done something about that because the woman is a sinner. He wouldn't let her touch him. But Jesus demonstrating to Simon his knowledge of her and yet his willingness to let her touch him, he said, Simon, I have something to ask of you. And he said, go ahead and Jesus said there was a certain man that had two servants. One owed him $1,000. The other owed him $50. He forgave both of them their debts. Which one loved him the more? Well, I suppose the one he forgave the more. Jesus said, that's right. And then he sort of rebuked him. He said, when I came into your house, you didn't kiss me, which was the custom, the oriental greeting. You didn't wash my feet. 
But this woman has kissed my feet. She's washed them with her tears. She's put the perfume on them. And I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So this is not that Mary. Uh, This is a different, uh, we don't know that woman's name, but this is the Mary who uh, just before uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, just a short while before, anointed his feet. Uh, And then she, of course, poured the perfume on his head and wiped his feet with her hair. So uh, John identifies her. We'll get that in the 12th chapter. Therefore, his sisters, sisters of Lazarus, sent unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you lovest is sick. Now, the word lovest there is the Greek word phileo. Devotion, or it's actually more of a, an emotional kind of a love that you have. Jesus loved them. He, he loved the family. It was a place where Jesus often would stay. He didn't have his own home. He didn't have his own bed. But there was always the welcome mat out at the house of uh, Martha and her sister Mary and brother Lazarus. And Jesus often, when in Jerusalem, would stay there with them. He loved them. And so it says, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Notice Uh, It's just information. There's not really a request here at all. It isn't really saying, Jesus, come. Because they knew Jesus and they knew his love and they knew that he would respond to their need. They didn't feel it necessary to make a request. Just informing him, the one that you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus is saying that death is not going to be the final issue. Uh, In reality, Lazarus was already dead. It is at least a day's journey, that is, if you really are moving, from the area of the Jordan River on up to Jerusalem. Usually they took it in two days. Uh, They usually figured 10 miles as a good day's journey. It's a little over 20 miles from the Jordan River up to Jerusalem. So uh, if it took a day for the messenger to come down, Jesus waited two days before he began to go to Bethany. If he made it there in a day, uh, this is only three days. He heard the message. He went there. It means that Lazarus was already dead, but yet Jesus is saying this sickness is not unto death, meaning that death is not going to be the final issue. But there is a purpose in this. God has a purpose in this sickness. And the purpose is that God might be glorified and that the Son of God 
might be glorified through the sickness. God has a purpose for the things that happen in our lives. He does not operate apart from a purpose and a plan that he has for us. And God said through the prophet, I know my thoughts concerning you. They are good, not evil, to bring you to an expected or a desirable end. So Jesus is saying, there's a purpose for this. Now we read, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Here is a different Greek word. The one that you love us, phileo. Emotional thing. Now Jesus loved, this is agapao, from which we get, of course, the agape. The agapao, Jesus was devoted to them. He loved them divinely, spiritually. There was a a deep, deep love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he stayed two days still in the same place where he was. He didn't just say, let's take off. But he remained there for two days. And then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. It was as though he wasn't going to respond at all to the need, staying there for just a couple of days. And then he says, well, now let's go to Judea. His disciples said to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone you, and you're going to go there again? In the last chapter, we remember they were taking up stones to stone him because they said he was claiming to be the son of God. But he escaped out of their hand. Now the disciples say, Lord, you want to go back up there again? The last time we were there, you remember they were going to stone you. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walks in the night, he stumbles, because there is no light in him. Jesus said, I know what I'm doing. You walk in the daylight because you can see where you're going. Jesus is more or less saying, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. I'm aware. I'm not walking in darkness. I'm not oblivious to what's going on. He was in control of the situation. And these things he said, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's probably getting better. Howbeit Jesus was speaking of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of his taking a rest in sleep. And so Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus died 
Uh, it's actually uh, there in the past tense. Lazarus died. It's interesting that the term sleep has been used for the death of the child of God to distinguish it from the death of a sinner. If you're a child of God, you really don't die. It's more like sleeping than death. And so to distinguish between the two. You see, it's really wrong to say concerning a child of God, well, he died last week. No, he moved last week out of a tent and into the house. You see, someday you might read in the paper, Chuck Smith died. Don't believe that. (laughs) That's poor reporting. To be accurate, they must write, Chuck Smith moved out of an old worn-out tent into a beautiful new mansion, a building of God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So they use the term sleep. You remember when the daughter of Jairus had died, when Jesus came to the house, they were wailing, and, and, and he said, She is not dead, she only sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn. So he put them all out. Now, he is using the same term concerning Lazarus, and and the disciples don't understand it. They said, well, if he's sleeping, he's probably getting better. And so Jesus just said plainly, he died. But then he said, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you might believe. Nevertheless, let's go to him. Now, when Jesus does come, they say, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. And they were probably correct. Had Jesus been there when he was sick, he probably would have healed him so that he would not have died. But Jesus is saying, I'm glad for your sake I wasn't there. Now, you remember he is in this state for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified. This is the sixth of the signs that John gives to us to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, on two other occasions, Jesus raised the dead, little... uh, it was Talitha, the, the daughter of Jairus, but she had just died. She wasn't dead very long. There was the widow's son of Nain. They were carrying the body out for burial when Jesus stopped the funeral procession and healed him or brought him back to life. Um, it would probably be better to say resuscitated them rather than resurrected them because they came back into the same body and the resurrection we're going to have new bodies different bodies but they came back into the same body their spirits returned to the same body now the interesting thing is that jesus in all of the cases talked to the dead now you wouldn't think of doing that would you He he said to her, 
little maiden, arise, or little gazelle, arise. And, and he said to the son of the widow to arise. Later on, we'll find him saying, Lazarus, come forth. So Jesus is now deliberately waiting so that there will be no question. You see, you could say, well, maybe they hadn't really fully expired. Uh, maybe she had just gone into a coma and it appeared that she was dead. And uh, maybe, uh, in fact, there are some commentaries that suggest when Jesus came up to the casket and saw the widow's son, he saw a flicker of his eye or something and realized that uh, he really wasn't dead, so he, you know, he called him forth. And so that these kind of commentators wouldn't have an opportunity to uh, really deal with this issue. He waited two days so that by the time he arrived, he had been dead for four days so that there could be no mistaking that this guy is really gone. And uh, that then the miracle becomes even more prominent uh, because of the time that lapsed between his death and between uh, the resuscitation by Jesus. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you might believe. Purposes of God in this is that it might confirm the faith of the disciples in Jesus. Nevertheless, he said, let us go to him. Then said Thomas, and, and Thomas is sort of that, you know, dour kind of a guy, which is called Didymus, which is, means a twin, uh, said unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. In other words, figured, well, they're going to kill him. I mean, they were ready to stone him, uh, and uh, they're objecting. Lord, don't you remember they were ready to stone you? And so Jesus said, well, let's go. And, he, and Tom said, well, let's go, fellas. We might as well die with him, you know. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, you know, the end kind of a thing. And when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the grave for four days. Now Bethany was near to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. A furlong is about an eighth of a mile, so Bethany is just a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Quite often, when a person would die, uh, they even had professional mourners, people who were particularly adept at wailing. And they would hire them. And you would have to stay in the house for seven days wailing after the death of a person uh, to really demonstrate your love. And so uh, Mary and Martha were there in the house and other Jews had come to uh, wail with them over the death of uh, their brother Lazarus. And Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, broke protocol. You weren't to leave the house for seven days. But she broke protocol, and she went out to meet him, 
But Mary remained there in the house. And then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. I think, though we can't be dogmatic, I think that with Martha, there was surely disappointment and perhaps even a slight rebuke of Jesus. It was more or less saying, Lord, what took you so long to get here? Surely by our message, you you realized it was serious. If you'd only come earlier, if you'd only come more quickly, you could have averted this tragedy. You could have averted our sorrowing and our grief. If you'd only have been here, things would be different. But then she said something interesting. But I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give it to you. Now that's quite a statement. Is she suggesting that Jesus could actually raise her brother from the dead? or that God could if he would just ask him. I know that whatsoever you ask of God, he will give it to you. It would appear that that's what she was perhaps suggesting. However, when they came to the tomb and Jesus said to roll the stone away or to take the stone away from the entrance to the tomb, It was Martha who said, oh, Lord, you better not, because he's been dead there for four days, and, you know, it's smelly. So uh, sort of an ambivalence. I think we all understand that. (laughs) There is, I think, with each of us, sort of an ambivalence at times where we say, oh, Lord, we know you can do anything, but, uh, well, Lord, don't you realize what's really happening here? You know, I mean, just, uh, (laughs) you know, it's sort of, Uh, the faith sort of wavers. Jesus said unto her, your brother will rise again. Now, I believe that Jesus is is telling her I'm going to raise him. But she understands him to be talking of the resurrection of the last days, the one that uh, Daniel prophesied. So Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said unto her, I am, and this is the sixth I am of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now she had said, Lord, I know that whatever you ask the Father, he will give it to you. And now he is is making this statement, radical statement indeed. I am the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Lazarus had believed in Jesus. Though he was dead, yet he will live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, Jesus in that 
second part, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die, is referring to spiritual death, which is the separation of a man from God, the separation of a man's consciousness from God. That's spiritual death. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the Gospel of John in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the resurrection and the life. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 10 through 11 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Now may the Lord be with you. May his hand be upon you to guide and to direct you this week in his path. And may the Spirit of God just assure your hearts of your place in Christ, knowing that he is the door and we have entered in by him. And there, sheltered and protected by him, he will watch over us, he will keep us, he'll see that no harm comes to his sheep, for he loves his sheep. He knows his sheep. I'm so glad that I'm one of the flock of God. (laughs) May the Lord just enrich your walk in Christ. May he fill your mind and heart with an understanding of his truth. And may you continue to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. What does the future hold? Is the end of time really near? When will the church be raptured? What is the rapture? Will we see the Antichrist? What about the Great Tribulation? Join Pastor Chuck Smith as he answers these and many more questions about the end times in his exciting book, Final Act. Now available in hardcover, Pastor Chuck gives great insight into man's final days here on earth. Joe Rosenberg calls Final Act a powerful, provocative end times primer. Tim LaHaye states this unique and dramatic treatment is both true to scripture and practical. Read about this exciting drama and get answers to your questions on world wars, the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, the Second Coming, and more. 
For more information on how to order your copy, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org or call toll-free at 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-9673.